Welcome to This Stuff Works podcast. This is our third episode, and uh, it's a real honor to have an in-person guest here, uh, our first ever in-person guest, uh, Chief PJ Legmaid from Black Forest Fire. Uh, awesome to have you here with us, PJ. Yeah, pretty humbled and honored to be here. We're uh, Well, you've made the trip down from Colorado. I know it's uh, not an easy thing, and you're busy, man, with a lot on your plate. So, um, But I, I'm, you've been a a good friend to Echelon Front here and somebody that we certainly admire in the first responder world. And uh, you've lived these principles out, you know, through your leadership and the team that you built. And that's very obvious uh, as we've gotten to do some work with, with you and, and the Black Forest Fire team. And um, just couldn't be more proud of your leadership. And I think you set a, a great standard of how to take these and apply them in, uh, in the first responder world, in the fire service. Uh, but, but in general, I think just as a leader, uh, as a human, and um, you're, you're a friend, and we, we appreciate you being here. Well, it's great to be here, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's tough hearing you say those things only because I'm always thinking it's really the team that executes. I'm just setting up parameters and uh, let, them, let them do it, you know. So it's not me. It's them. It's the guys and the gals. They get it done. Well, that's pretty much what uh, – what the best leaders I know say uh, all the time, <laughs> giving their team credit, <laughs> uh, which is look, it's awesome. I think again, that says a lot about you. But it's 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 just been great. You know, we just had a three of your your guys at our uh, field training exercise program, which was awesome. Um, just a great great to see their perspective. Great to see their enthusiasm. You know, your team that that's uh, come to musters and been a part of this stuff. It's been uh, it's they they always bring their A game. They always bring you know enthusiasm and, and eagerness to ask questions and learn. And, uh, and I think that just says a lot about the, the culture you built the Black Force Fire. Yeah, I think it's really just they, they show up with an open mind, you know, and that's the key right there. It's, you know, as long as they show up with an open mind, they stay humble. I mean, that's one of our core values is humility. And they know that's what I expect is we're going to go with other people's plans. We're not going to push our egos. We're just going to do good work and uh, listen. And I think they show up to those events with that same mindset without preconceived ideas. So that's why they're doing a good job. It's not me, it's them. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Right on. Well, let's talk, let's, let's give everybody uh, some background about you. So you, you grew up in a small town in uh, New England outside of Boston. Yep. And uh, you have been in the fire service for 21 years. Uh, you grew up in a law enforcement household, decided to go into the fire service. Yep. And then so you, you've got uh, experience as a volunteer firefighter in Wyoming, and then it, with a big city fire department in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and now as the chief at uh, Black Forest Fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's been good. That's a pretty good spectrum there to have is the volunteer where you're wondering, gosh, am I the only one that's showing up um, compared to the big city where you're showing up with a small army compared to a suburb where you're, you know what a big department's going to bring, uh, but you don't have all those people. and. It's kind of why training is a big deal for us because we, every one of them has to be squared away. So it's a, yeah, it's a good spectrum. Well, let's talk about you growing up. Uh, you know, why, why did you decide to go in the fire service in the first place? Like what, what drew you to that? Well, yeah, that's quite a story right there. So growing up just outside Boston, did a lot of construction work in Boston. I actually started in construction at a very young age and Everybody on the crew, my dad was a cop, knew these firefighters. They were all firefighters on the crew, off-duty fire guys. And I can tell you that that's not the ideal location for an adolescent boy to grow up is with a bunch of off-duty firefighters. (laughs) 
And uh, so you end up with a pretty sick, twisted sense of humor. Plus, you're in Boston, so you're really just grinding it out all the time. And I was really interested in the fire service. And actually, every single one of them said, don't do it. And I was surprised at that. And when I asked them why not, um, it was because, you know, a lot of firefighters were getting killed back in the 70s and 80s. And they lived through all that. And they were like uncles, so they didn't really want to see me go down that road. So, um, long story short, I end up out in Wyoming, and I just had the bug. I still had the bug. Um, but I respected their opinion, so I decided, you know what, I'll just go get my EMT, and I'll help out. And then uh, one thing led to another, and I was in a in a basement fire in, in uh, Wyoming, and I was like, oh, I got to do this. I got to go find a paycheck doing this. Um, but yeah, growing up in New England, really good mentors, um, learned work ethic and, uh, and then having a, having a really outstanding father who I didn't know at the time. Um, you know, he was just a solid man and good cop. And, uh, I joked though that we never had any conversations until I was in my twenties. He was just always like interrogating me. <laughs> What'd you do this weekend? He already knew, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, it was it was good, you know. Um, good culture back there, but it wasn't wasn't. Uh, I guess it just wasn't meant to be to be How, there. How'd you end up in Wyoming and Colorado, coming from Boston area? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> basically, I was doing construction, which allowed me to make some cash, go travel around the country come back, make some cash, travel around the country. And I was like 17, 18, 19. And I met my wife in New England. She grew up there as well. And she wanted to go out west. And I said, well, let me show you Wyoming. And we went up there. She loved it. And when we came back from that trip, it was like a month later, two months later, um, she was like, hey, we're going to be parents. And I was like, I don't know that I want to raise a kid in this environment. She said, where are we going? And I said, Wyoming. And uh, to her credit, she's like, okay, which massive cultural shock. Um, she grew up in a, like, legit, hardcore, gritty, ghetto-type city. And for her to move to Wyoming was, you know, that's total opposite end of the world. Um, so that's, that's how we ended up there. And then, like I said, that fire, um, basement fire in Wyoming, I asked the chief up there, where do I go in the Rockies? And he said, Colorado Springs. So tested down in Colorado Springs, got hired and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, kind of a bit of a whirlwind to get there, but that's about it. And then, ha so how'd you, how, how'd you end up from Colorado Springs to, Black Forest Fire, where you're the chief now. Yeah, so that's that was uh, an interesting journey as well. And so, um, in 2013, um, Black Forest had at the time Black Forest is a small community um, just north of Colorado Springs, and they had what at the time was the most destructive fire in state history, wiped out 500 homes, killed two people. Um, and then after that, there was a lot of political turmoil about decisions that were made. Um, and I, I've never criticized the operations of that fire. 
Um, and I lived up there and lost my house in that fire. And it's really easy for people to be critical when they don't have to make decisions in a time competitive environment. And so I strayed away from that. <clears throat> but there was there was clearly some things that were going on within the organization that the community wanted to change. And they ended up drafting me basically to go sit on the department and overlook the department. And uh, so we did that for a bit. And then when a chief was leaving, I was it was time for me to move on. So I moved on and uh, I couldn't have been gone more than 48 hours it felt like. And the chairman of the board called me and said, hey, can you just do a 90 day audit as a interim fire chief? And I was like, no. <laughs> And I said, why me? And he was like, well, you know what a fire department should look like. Um, we just want you in there for 90 days, kind of look at the operations um, from a boots-on-the-ground perspective. And so I was like, 90 days? Okay. Yeah, that was like three years ago. <laughs> you know, one thing led to another where 60 days into it were um, – it wasn't the, – the guys and gals there – were doing the best that they could. Um, but they just didn't know what they didn't know, which is true for all of us, right? Um, but I was coming from an organization that had 500 firefighters, 21 firehouses, massive support, massive logistics, and they didn't have any of that. So just basic safety standards that the, the guys and gals were being neglected on we just brought it to the elected officials said hey we need to spend money here and uh they were all surprised that money wasn't being spent there and i remember one of the things i was told was budgeting things does not mean purchasing things <laughs> it was like oh so the stuff was in the budget but not none of those items were actually being purchased which is why uh, the books always looked good well the elected officials didn't realize that bunker gear and uh, air handling systems and things like that weren't being purchased. So when we brought that up, it was, uh, yeah, they agreed. Okay, let's do that. And that started opening up the door to them seeing, hey, you know what? We're just going to keep you for another 90 days. So I was like, do I have a choice in this matter? And they were like, no. <laughs> and the number two guy, the deputy chief, I looked at him. I said, I think I just got drafted. He's like, I think so, sir. <laughs> and he was he was outstanding when I got in there. He was the number two guy when I got there. And he just came in and said, hey, just so you know, uh, I ride for the brand. Just an old cowboy saying, he says, I ride for the brand. Uh, I know most people would have thought I'd be the interim fire chief. I think you're the right guy and uh, whatever you need. So he was super humble. And so we did that. And then COVID hit. <clears throat> COVID hits during this time when I'm just an interim fire chief. And I'm telling them, hey, you need to look for an actual fire chief. I still have a job in the city. I'm working two full-time jobs at this point, one for the city of Colorado Springs, one for Black Forest Fire. And I'm getting burned out. My wife knows I'm getting burned out. And it was like, you need to find somebody. And after COVID hit and we declared emergencies and accessed funding and all that stuff. They were like, we found a guy. I was like, perfect. I can move on. They're like, it's you. <laughs> I was like, no, I told you no. 
and uh, you know they they ran through an election cycle. I actually pushed back on them. I said, "Hey, you've made a bunch of decisions, and there hasn't been an election cycle. You need to see if the community is comfortable with this because it's the community's fire department." And after the election cycle, they all had their positions, and they offered me the job, and I said no. <laughs> And they said, why? And I said, really? At that time, I had 15 years in the city, and I wanted to get to 20 in the pension system. And so they offered me a five-year contract. And I said, okay. And as a man of faith, I was like, okay, God's got a path here, and I'm just ignoring his will, and that's never going to go well for me. So I uh, jump-shipped and went to Black Forest, and that was... Yeah, that's how I ended up there. Right on. That's that's an awesome story, PJ. I think uh, yeah, you got to you got to trust in God's God's will. There certainly do. Uh, if He keeps <laughs> knocking you over the head with something of like, hey, this door's this is the door that you need to walk through, even if you're resistant to it. That's uh, uh, I think be, being willing to be humble enough, uh, you know, to 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 follow uh, where you're being led. That's that's awesome. Um, how did how did you come across? extreme ownership I mean, Jocko podcast like echelon front like what's what first led you in that direction the first edition <laughs> um i have an addiction to books and so i used to back in the day when barnes and noble had uh, quite the selection I used to be going there all, all the time once a week uh, at least and having grown up my dad was a vietnam veteran and than a cop, and like I said, I didn't really know this man. Um, super stoic, and so I was reading military books my whole my whole youth. And so when I went through the Barnes and Noble and saw this white book, Seal Trident, and I was like, hmm, I wonder what this is. And so I cracked it open. I was like, I'm getting it. And you know that was right after. The house burned down. I was having I was having a lot of a lot of personal issues, and I actually had to take like four months off from work to get my head screwed on straight. Uh, I spent two days a week in in church, two days a week in counseling, and it was a really dark place. Now, so I was coming out of that. That was 2014 into like January of 2015, and then I think the book came out in was it April October October, October 2015. Yeah. Okay. So I was kind of on that journey of like, okay, every one of these issues in my life is actually 100% my fault. Like, it's not my wife, it's not my kid, it's not my job, it's none of those things, it's me. That's a tough pill to swallow. And uh, so to find a book, and in addition to that, I was also looking at leadership my whole life. My dad was an outstanding leader, and so my mentors were all great leaders, so there was this you know, a couple things going on there. And then your book basically just simplified it and resonated. And I was like, oh, this is good stuff. So that was, that was before I was, you know, listening to a podcast or anything. I mean, I don't know when Jocko's podcast started, but. Right after the book came out, I think he started December, 2015. So about two months after the book launched. I probably wouldn't have even known what a podcast is, you know, I'm pretty much a Neanderthal, so. Like I can read. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's how I ended up in it. And, uh, I mean, just an outstanding book, you know. Once you read the book, did you start to, um, I mean, are these principles that you tried to, to, uh, 
instilled in the people around you? I mean, did you did you hand copies of the book? Like, how did, how did that grow to become like the culture of the team? And yeah, so at that time, obviously, I was still. Um, so I became the interim fire chief in 2019. So at that time, I was still with the Col- uh, city of Colorado Springs all the time. And if there's if there, there's two things that firefighters don't like, it's change in the way things are. I mean, that's just the way. It is. Sound like sound like Navy sailors. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of guys and gals in the fire department that are like, oh, you know. We need changes. Lead, we need leadership. We need this, that, and the other thing. And and uh, it became very apparent to me because I had experienced this cultural deal where I go from Boston, which is like very direct, in your face. There's no such thing as an indirect method in Boston. That just doesn't exist. Um, it's just in your face. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. And if you like it, great. If you don't, I don't really care. And then afterwards, we're going to go have a beer. That's just how it is. So then I moved to Wyoming and Colorado, and I start to think, what is wrong with all these people? And the reality is it was me. <laughs> it, you know, like their, their reality was different than mine, and I'm assuming that they understand. So my point on that is that in the fire department, I grew up with these salty old-school East Coast firefighters, and the culture was different. And so I, if I wanted to have an impact – I had to realize, hey, I need to work within their environment and not expect the environment to shift to align with me. So when Extreme Ownership came out, I had already had kind of that realization. And the company I worked on, the fire company I worked on um, in the city was an extremely elite company. Um, And so we challenged the norms anyways. So what I had come to realize was you can't force this stuff on people, anything. And so it wasn't a matter of like trying to push it on people. It was a matter of really saying, you know what, this works for me. Um, it's just like faith. You know, if you're trying to push your faith on the people, they they kind of resist it, <laughs> you know. Um, but just for clarity, I'm not comparing extreme ownership to uh, <laughs> the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, it's that's a much much more important <laughs> mission. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're uh, uh, certainly these things can be found in, in biblical truth. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how I just started living the principles. You know, and at the time, I was doing some small leadership speaking because of everything that had gone on in Black Forest too. Um, there was stakeholders in the region that had kind of noticed me, and as you know, I kind of prefer to stay in the shadows and. You guys are dragging me out of the shadows. <laughs> and they they were noticing, so they were asking me to, hey, can you speak to this group of emerging leaders? Um, can you group, um, you know, can you speak to a group of developers? And so I would speak to them and um, kind of gave them some little nuggets of leadership that I had learned along the way. But at every one of those things, I would have some raffles and give away extreme ownership. And so it was just a, hey, yeah, I'm not going to just give it to everybody in there, but it was like just there, just there sitting for the taking. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how the very beginning started. You know, it's funny that you talked about people, you know, growing up in Boston and just being very direct. And and obviously, you know, this is 
it's a common human tendency. I mean, there certainly are, you know, some generalizations you can make about folks and um, whether it's certain parts of the country or, or, or particular uh, industries, you know, things like that. Um, and, and certainly I think we see a lot of that in the first responder world where like, hey, I'm just direct. I'm going to tell you how it is. And uh, if you don't like it, that's your problem, you know, not mine. And it's almost, you know, we saw it in the SEAL teams as well. And, and, and I've... I'm one of those people as well. Like, I'm, I'm going to be direct. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm just going to get right to the point of things. And, you know, it really took me working with Jocko to realize, like, hey, is is that really working for you, you know? And if people are reacting in a negative way and pushing back on things, it's not helping you, whether it's your boss or whether it's the people on your team or whether it's peers or, you know, other supporting uh, uh, folks in, in different departments that, that you depend on. Um, it, it's... It's just that's the, the you know the power of this indirect uh, approach, and it's I think it's a hard thing, particularly in the first responder world, to, to grasp. And and we get we get that a lot from people that read the book, want to just demand that everybody around them you know uh, start taking ownership and pointing out all the flaws in everybody else. And and it's uh, it, it's 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 a bummer because what you're doing is just driving people away from these concepts. Uh, where we know that, hey, how do you get other people to take ownership? You take ownership. When you start implementing these, these concepts yourself, when you start taking ownership of stuff, um, it, it, instead of pointing out the lack of ownership in everybody else, you know, instead of people getting defensive and digging in, when you take ownership, they actually, their mind opens, and they start to take ownership as well. It becomes a culture of the team. Um, and it's, it's the, that indirect approach that people, people are like reticent to really you know, embrace um, is it gets you to where you need to go faster than, than just trying to demand that everybody around you start taking ownership and beating them over the head with the books or, you know, the podcast, whatever it is. It gets you there quicker. Plus you have a relationship when you get there as compared to all this friction, you know? So yeah, you could use your authority to get somebody to comply, but that's, that's short term and they're just not going to get it. You know, um, you're, you're spot on though with the, the first responder community, that direct approach. And I mean, firefighters are, uh, we did some testing when we started testing for, uh, I did, we did some, a study when we started doing some entry level testing and what it was, was like, Hey, what makes a, what makes a really, really good firefighter, a really, really good firefighter. Like goes back to my days on the rescue company where, and that was the name of the company I was at with the city is, if we're looking for top performers, what actually makes them a top performer? So we talked to some IO psychologists and, and started kind of figuring out, hey, that's what makes this guy tick. And so the doctors, there was like a team of three of them telling me, the number one attribute you need to test for is drive. I was like, oh, okay. And they go through the list and there's like eight attributes. And nowhere on that list was humility. <laughs> and I was like, you guys are wrong because <laughs> from my perspective, humility is the most important. And then they said, from your perspective as a fire chief, who's got 20 years in the fire service and, you know, 50 years in life. Yeah. Humility is the most important thing. But for a 20 year old kid who's going to go running into a burning building where life is ceasing to exist, humility is not one of those things. <laughs> and I was like, check. They're like, they're going to have to learn humility and that level of drive and more cockiness than confidence um, is what starts them on that career, you know, and that's, so the people that are coming into those services, they've got a, they've got a level of 
just barely unhealthy ego that has, as they get ground down by the job, they start to realize the difference between confidence and cockiness and being humble, you know. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's a tough lesson to learn, but that's also <clears throat> where I think the extreme ownership piece, yeah, it's, it's on me, but being humble and realize that that takes a lot of humility to realize it's your fault. No question. I mean, I, I, I would push back on that to say that, look, I, I think whether you're brand new in the job or experienced in the job, I think the fact you're, you're never going to get, you're never going to learn and grow, right? If you don't have an open mind, if you're, oh, yeah. if you think you got it all figured out. And so I think there's no question. I mean, people that join the SEAL teams the same way. Like there's a, you, you got to have an ego. Right? You, like that's what drives people into like, Hey, I want to be a part of this unit. Uh, like, Oh, you're telling me that's, that's the toughest military training in the world. Cool. I'm going to go do that. You know, that that's, uh, um, and I think that's something that, I'm sure it draws people in the fire service just as it draws people to the SEAL teams. Uh, we used to kind of joke that, you know, the, the, uh, if, if the cockiest person in the world is the person that just graduated buds, right? Our basic training program. So you just graduated. You don't even know what you don't know at this point. Then you go on to your advanced training, what we call SQT SEAL qualification training. You spend about six months trying to learn some individual skills and you realize like, Oh, there's a lot I don't know. Then you go to the SEAL platoon and uh, you start going through a year-long, year-and-a-half-long workup cycle, and you realize, like, oh, there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. Then you deploy overseas for the first time, and you get thrown into combat operations. You're like, I don't know anything. Uh, it, so it, it's yep. – that's – that, like, level of humility is pretty uh, – Yeah, and that's – you basically just described the same experience you have in the, the rescue companies. So in the fire service, you have engine companies, and they, they bring the water to the fire. You have truck companies or ladder companies, and they do the search and rescue piece. And then you have, in big cities, you have uh, what's called a rescue, and sometimes they call them heavy rescues. And they're, t they're kind of a utility player. You know, they, they not only go to every fire in the city, but they go to every rope rescue, confined space, dive, um, recovery, swift water, anything that's technical. Basically anything that a person can get themselves stuck in, under, or on top of, we got to come up with a solution for well, that's a pretty complex world considering uh, people are doing stuff all the time. And when you get to that company, there, and there's typically one in a, in a big city. Uh, so like Colorado Springs had one. Denver had one until like two years ago. They had, now they have two. New York City has five. Um, but there's, there's actually less, if, if my math is correct, there's less rescue companies in the United States, um, like less... There's less rescue firefighters in the United States than there are Navy SEALs. That's how small of a group it is. And they're, they draw the people that want to get after it. And the first year that you're there, you're like, oh, I need to learn some things. By the end of the first year, you're like, yeah, I got this figured out. By the end of your second year, you're like, mm, there's still a little bit more to learn, but I got this all figured out. Third year, you start to realize... I don't really know if I'm going to learn all this. And after your fifth year, you're like, yeah, there's no way I'm ever going to know everything there is to know. So I just got to build the problem solving skills instead of the task level skills. Cause people are creative and they can get themselves into some creative situations that we got to solve. And, but it's that same thing where you're driven and you think, you know, and then over time you realize you don't know anything. So you gotta gotta have an open mind. No question. I, I think that's one of the things I love. You know, I know 
at Black Forest Fire, I mean, your emphasis is training, and uh, and you guys train hard, and you spend a ton of time training, much more than than, than other fire fire departments that I've seen. Um, and and it's, I mean, that to me is one of the biggest things where we brought back those lessons: humility, ownership, teamwork. You know, from from Ramadi and that humility piece. Just the idea that if, if you'd asked young Lieutenant Leif Babin, you know, Charlie Platoon Commander, to ask you to bruiser before we deployed to the Battle of Ramadi in two thousand six. Hey, are you ready for some tough urban combat situations? Like, yeah, bring it on. We're totally ready. And uh, having been in those, you know, a bunch of those situations where we are totally humbled or outmaneuvered or simply just beaten, you know, or just unprepared, um, and to come back from that and have to really analyze that stuff and think about it and pass on to the next generation of SEALs, like, hey, this this is way harder than you think it's going to be. And I think that's that to me is is being able to to, to ramp up training that can mimic a real, a realistic, chaotic, difficult scenario where the answers aren't clear and there's, and, and you got to sort through the, you know, the, the, those issues. Um, I, I think so often, I think people think they're ready for that until they actually get into it. And I love that's what, you know, uh, I love that's what you guys do is really spend a, a lot of time and effort training people, putting them in some, some challenging scenarios. Yeah. I mean, some of the metrics are just, they almost seem unreal. So in 2018, um, yeah, I think it was 2018, they had like 500 hours of training, the entire department, 500 hours. And now if they're under 1,500 hours a month of training, uh, we're having a conversation because <laughs> I'm like, what, what happened? So it's basically like, hey, 20% of your time is going to be spent training. And the more realistic, the more arduous – we also don't just make it so that it's like, hey, all day you're training. Those 15-minute, those 20-minute little drills, those are priceless. You know, you can get a lot of a lot of reps in that way. Uh, but we definitely, we have to push the training. Uh, fortunately for the fire service in America, the number of fires are down compared to our forefathers. But the laws of physics haven't changed one bit. So how else are you going to get that experience? got to be realistic that's how you got to do it I, I think that's awesome pj and you have um you know we always talk about that for the first responder world you know um the jockos that look ideally right 20 percent of your time is is training you know 80 percent of your time is spent on the job and 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 that's one of the big things that that we hear a lot right is we don't have time to train our people are actually on the job um and clearly you've made you've made time for that which which is awesome it's about <clears throat> prioritize right i mean that's got to be a priority so I think that's one of the things that a lot of leaders probably struggle with, or at least managers, is taking care of your people. Taking care of your people doesn't mean, you know, the greatest compensation package and all of these other things or time off. Taking care of your people means that they have the skills to actually execute the job, you know, especially in this profession where they make the wrong decision. There's there's consequences to that. So if we're really going to take care of our people – we got to train them, mentor them, develop them. To me, that's taking care of our people. No question about that. That was a tough lesson for me to learn, you know, of, of uh, the, the setting people up for success where they can accomplish their mission in the most difficult environment possible and bring as many people home, you know, from that dangerous, you know, uh, situation as possible. And uh, if you're not pushing that standard high, high and, and training them hard, um, you're, you're, you're setting them up for failure. And it's definitely not taking care of your people. I always, I always love what JP Donnell says, 
you know, if, if it's not that you don't have time, it's that you didn't prioritize it. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is exactly what you're talking about when it comes to training. Like, Hey, we don't have time to train. No, actually I failed to prioritize training. Um, and you, you clearly are, are doing that for, for you and, and, and for your team. And I think it's, it's awesome. You're, y'all are setting a great example, I think for every other fire department out there. Yeah. Well, and I think you have to, you know, you guys talk about connecting the thread of why you have to explain why too, you know, it's not just about, Hey, we, we serve the public, but it's because we care about these guys, these guys and gals that are getting on the fire truck. And I, I, I want to make sure they have a outstanding career that their families are taking care of, which means that they have to be smart. You know, it's, they're not going to be safe. And I know there's a lot of people in the fire service that are going to cringe when I say that, but I'd rather them be smart. So set them up for success by giving them good training, build their knowledge, skills, and abilities, and then unleash them. So that to me is taking care of them because you actually care about them. Um, but if you just don't tell them that you care about them, or if you don't tell them that's why they're training, it probably diminishes their their ability to prioritize it too. And when you say, you know, not safe, I mean, what, you, what you're saying is there's some element of risk that you just simply can't control on the job, right? I mean, it, that's like the, we had a lot of pushback, you know, of, um, at times, I think early in the wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, where there was almost this idea of some by some of the senior leaders that, you could conduct a combat mission and mitigate every risk. And, and, and it was like the idea of like, no, it's a, it's a combat mission, man. There's, there's some element of risk by the very nature of what we're doing. It's obviously the same thing when you're out there fighting fires. So there, you, you got to teach them to be smart, to mitigate the risk they can control. Uh, but the idea that there's going to be, you know, uh, they're going to be in an environment that's a hundred percent predictable and, and totally safe is just by nature of the job. Not, not the case. No, it's not the case at all. You know, and that's, I think that's one of the things that makes Black Forest unique is while we want to be safer, we, we recognize that to mitigate the risks, we have to be smart. Because if you really just detach from it and look at it, you say, okay, so I'm giving you 90 seconds to get out the door. You just got a call that you got a structure fire. Adrenaline's going up. You know, now I'm giving you 90 seconds, get out the door. Then I'm going to give you lights and sirens that gives you permission to go a certain above the speed limit, you know, and, and stop briefly at a stoplight and go through intersections and then show up at a building that potentially has people in it. And now we're going to go in there and then we're going to tell them, Oh, be safe. That's nowhere only in that whole spectrum where we being safe. So we got to be smart about managing all of those risks. And that's one of the things that we're trying to message there is that's what we do is manage risk. That's what we do is manage risk. We did it with COVID. We did it with structure fires. We, we just manage risk. And I think that resonates with some people because they recognize that there's, it's, it's almost disingenuous to say, you know, the number one priority is to be safe. Because if that were true, wouldn't we just stay in the firehouse and not go anywhere? The reality is we're going out there to do a job. That job is dangerous. The number of priorities go go out and save lives and, and protect property while being as safe as possible. Exactly. Yeah, which is which are which is very different. And you're accepting that there is some level of risk and uh, which means that the only way to make people smart to be able to mitigate that risk is train them yeah. and to put them in those difficult situations um, as much as possible in training before they're in them in, in reality. Yeah, you know, and that brings up the probably 
the biggest thing that I tell folks is for me as the fire chief, it's actually the exact same thing as when I was a firefighter on the rescue company is I have two questions that I ask. And when I was newer to the job, the rescue was, is it safe and is it effective? And if the answer was yes, then we would just go with whoever's plan it was, which was a tough thing. That was part of the development of the extreme ownership side of things and inside of the rescue company was, hey, you know, we're not going with our plan. We're going with their plan. Well, now in a chief executive officer position, it's the exact same two questions, but it's, am I comfortable with the risk and is it effective? And if I can answer yes to both of those things, going with their plan 100% of the time. If I'm asking questions, it's because I'm, I can't answer yes to those two things. So my folks know that if I start asking questions, you just got to get me into those circles where I'm like, oh, okay, I'm comfortable with the risk now. <laughs> Sounds good. Or yeah, that's effective. You know, so that whole risk management piece is, that's just kind of a foundational thing for us. Right on. How do you, uh, I mean, PJ, you, you know, you clearly, you've built this in the culture of the organization. We talked about how, you know, the, 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 the folks on your team that I've, I've seen come to our events and been a part of training. I mean, they're, they're fired up. They're eager to learn this stuff. They're eager to grow and learn as leaders and, and to continue to build this in the culture of your team. What has been most effective as you've taken to, to implement the principles of extreme ownership, the laws of combat and mindsets for victory into your team? Uh, and then where have you seen some, some pushback on that? Uh, to your first part of that question is patience, having the patience. When they come to me with a question, I almost never give them an answer because I want them to make the decision. And then we have a conversation like, okay, well, as a matter of fact, just yesterday, um, I was in the airport on my way here and I get a phone call from an officer and he says, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And I said, what's, what's preventing you from making the decision? And he was like, okay. So I think part of it is the patience to, to detach enough to realize, like, my job as the fire chief is to develop this team. My job isn't to go put out fires. So that's going to take time where they have to get comfortable, got to build relationships and let them actually see it at work. And then when they start making decisions, you got to figure out the tact tone and delivery piece of, like, Okay, cool. I see what you're thinking there. What are you thinking now? So the patience piece, I think, is a big part of it, which makes them feel comfortable that they can make mistakes. Um, some of them don't feel comfortable still. And I'd say that's where some of the pushback comes is, you know, as we were talking just before the, we started this, is when you make a decision, you own it. Like, even though you're working under my umbrella where I actually own everything that's going on within my command, you feel like you own it. And with that comes some risk that I'm wrong. And that's insulting to my ego. So I don't want to be wrong. What's the easy button? I'll just go to Leif. He can make the decision. And so that's where some of the pushback comes is some people don't want to make decisions. And uh, I need you to. They don't, they don't want to make decisions for the reasons you talked about. And they also think that that's what doing a good job looks like, right? I mean, I think that's, that's where a lot of people think like, Hey, I'm, you know, Hey, PJ's the chief. I'm going to go ask him, uh, to make the decision here and I'm going to present you with some options and it's your call. And they, they think that's what, you know, good, good actually looks like. And I think you have to really 
re-educate them to help them understand what true decentralized command is. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not just hey, do whatever you want, right? They, we we see people that go in that direction too, and that's that seems to scare a lot of the first responder um, uh, groups that we've worked with, whether it's a local police department or a statewide agency or or a fire department. Um, it's it there's a there's a real need to like no we, we can't delegate the decision making there's too much at stake here and and you know that needs to come come all through me um and i think rather than you know the idea of like look it's it's not just go do whatever you want it's it's hey this is the ultimate goal here's the the purpose and the goal of the end state we're trying to achieve here's the parameters where you can make decisions where you can't make decisions and when people really understand that then then you've got people that are at least, you know, if it's if it's outside of those parameters, it's above my pay grade to make the call. At least I can make a recommendation up the chain to say, hey, boss, here's what I think we can do to solve this problem. And then you could say, great, do that. Or, hey, hold on a second. Maybe we don't have the resource for that. Or, hey, there's some other things going on here that, you know, um, that I need to look into. Um, but I think it's 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 a constant process, process of educating people to, to show them that that's actually what good looks like. And that, look, if I'm the boss and you're coming to me for a decision and I'm saying, hey, what do you think we should do? I'm responsible for that decision. It's not on you. It's actually on me. And so I think you have to really encourage people and, and help them understand that, you know? Yeah, I think you're spot on with that. The encouragement piece is is huge. Um, it's When you think about, I'm saying, hey, the organization needs to spend 20% of its time training. I need to be spending more than that time investing in my people, which means investing in the relationship so that they know what winning looks like. They know that they can make decisions. And when they reach a, a sticking point, they can come and ask me questions. But for me, I still have to maintain the discipline of like, I should only answer the questions that only the fire chief can answer. That's it. Somebody else between me and them should probably have been able to answer that. And if they can't, why can't they? Where have I failed to get them that knowledge or give them that authority? So it's a, it's a daily struggle. I mean, you could ask my wife every day I go home. I'm like, yeah, I totally suck at this job because it's, it's a constant struggle and grind of like, Hey, I want to make sure I invest in our people because the people are the ones that actually execute the mission. It's not me, you know, um, all I can really do is just open up their aperture and let them see what they need to do and, give them the resources to do it how did uh how did this become part of the culture at uh at uh at black force fire yeah when i got there there was no there was no leadership training no leadership development and when you're in a small organization everybody needs to be able to make decisions especially where it's this this is not a 40 hour a week business it's 24 7 365 um those calls are getting made at three o'clock in the morning christmas morning somebody's got to make the decision so if you got an organization that needs decision makers every second of the day, you have to develop them. Nobody was developing them. So it was like, okay, now I'm the interim chief. Well, you know what? Let's, uh, I know exactly where to go to, to find some good leadership development. Fortunately, um, for me, you know, it was, I want to say it was 2000. When was the first roll call? 2017, 18? I think it was 2018, I believe. Yeah, it yeah, was right, so, right as dichotomy came yeah, out. So it was just, I know I had mentioned to you that I was doing some leadership training with some local businesses and organizations. Well, when I saw what you guys were doing, I was like, 
I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. What can I do to support Echelon Front? And I actually reached out to uh, Flynn at the time and said, hey, if you guys ever need anything, let me know. And so when the Denver muster came around, I reached out to Jamie and said, so we're bringing, you guys are bringing like a thousand people to a mile high <laughs> and we're not anticipating any medical issues. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, we should probably have somebody stand by and do medical stuff. Well, uh, I was like, great, you should do that. She said, can you do it? And I said, I could probably do one better. And so we brought up that team to do the standby medical in Denver. And that kind of started to get the ball rolling, you know, was to me, again, it wasn't me telling the guys and gals, hey, you need to do this. I basically said, hey, I need I need a paramedic and an EMT who's willing to uh, go to this event. You can uh, stand by and do medical, do some PT if you want. And they were like, oh, we'll do it, you know. So, uh, and of course, they're like, oh, are we getting paid? Yes, you're getting paid. So I pay them to come up. They're uh, on duty. And all of a sudden, they go back to the firehouse, and they're like, that was pretty legit. Next muster's coming up. Guys are like, hey, can I go? Yeah, we can send you. And we prioritize training in our budget to be able to start sending people, you know. So the training the training division has kind of laid out a pathway of, hey, we're going to give you these books. Whether you read them or not, that's totally up to you. Um, but there's some resources if you're an officer. And if you want to go through the officer progression in the fire department, you got to go to a muster. And now, as of last week, they got to go to an FTX. <laughs> Um, so really it's been organic, which is, I think, I think that's been the right way for us. You know, firefighters are, you know, like I said, they don't like change. It's hundred years of tradition unimpeded by progress. <laughs> so, um, they have to choose it of their own free will. And if I just force it on them, they're not gonna, they're not gonna do it. So they get to see it. And then they get to experience it, and then they want more of it. I think that's awesome, PJ. And we've we've seen that go badly, right? I mean, we talk about the mindset of being default aggressive, and I'm a very default aggressive person by nature. I want to make things happen. You know, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm just going to get right in there and, and do that. And that's where it goes back to that indirect approach. Where, yeah, I mean, I think the way the enthusiasm that your team has. Uh, you know, to, to be a part of these events is, is really incredible. And, and it's it would be so different if you just forced 12 of them to go to an event. They don't know what it is. They don't really know what it's about. And they're just kind of like, yeah, what is this thing? You know, maybe there's a handful of people that, you know, hey, they take something away from that. But there's people that are going to be rolling their eyes, you know, in the background. and They don't want to be a part of it. So I think, I think that longer term, you know, you talked about patience earlier. And to me, I would just call that a strategic approach. Like, where are you actually trying to get? You want... You want this to be a part of the culture of the team, which means it's got to be their idea, not your idea. And just introducing some people to the concepts, uh, offering it to them, but not forcing it on them, you know, not not uh, not really beating them over the head with it. And then introducing it to some people that then could now start talking about it and getting excited about it and, and, and you know, opening minds to other people like, oh, that's really cool. I'd like to go to one of those. You know, when you got people requesting that they go rather than you forcing them to go, I mean, it's a... It's, that's a totally different outcome as a result. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you're spot on. It's thinking strategically uh, and 
the fact of the matter is Black Forest is a small fire department and, and young firefighters who are hungry are going to want to go to other fire departments. And one of my grand strategic goals, and I define them differently, is when these men and women leave Black Forest, that they're squared away leaders that are going into other fire departments so that they can help those organizations as well. Because there's a good chance they're not going to stick around for 20, 30 years in a small suburb department. They want to go to the big city. They want to see if they have what it takes. Which, as they'll find out, it's really the same circus, different clowns. <laughs> but that's that's an awesome thing too, though. That that's something I saw in the SEAL teams. There's a, you know the worst thing that you can call somebody in the SEAL teams is a quitter. And this is, uh, you know, because I mean, just from our, you know, we have a 70 to 80% attrition rate going through buds. You know, if you ring the bell, drop on request, right? You're, you're a buds quitter. You know, it's, this is like, a, it's got a massive negative connotation. So, I mean, even someone like uh, Jason Gardner has been in the SEAL teams for 30 years or Steve Ward, you know, 28 years. These guys retire and you're like, oh, quitter. You know, they're, they're <laughs> like, uh, people are kind of joking about that stuff. And, and, and obviously there's, there's some joking element to that, but, but that's, one of the ways that they would retain people and I had it happen to me. I left, I left the Navy at the 13 year mark, you know, so I'm seven years shy of the 20 years acquired for, for, you know, uh, an official retirement. And, um, and so, it, you know, people are like, you know, like, Oh, you're quitting. You're walking away from the teams, you know? And, and it's, I, I, one of the most squared away leaders we worked with was an army battalion commander, and uh, when we were deployed to Ramadi and watching how he handled that, right? So, so the army would deploy for, I mean, they 12, 15 months at a time. And, uh, and so guys would be rotating back overseas, like their enlistment is up. And the Navy and Marine Corps, it generally doesn't happen like that. You, you deploy for the duration of your six-month deployment, and, and they will extend you. So, so people generally aren't ending an enlistment and going home in the middle of a deployment. Um, they're they're going to extend you based on you know hey you've agreed to go on this deployment okay you're gonna you're gonna get out when you get back but the army doesn't work like that and, and they'd have people that are leaving in the middle of a deployment uh, and their enlistments up and this battalion commander rather than you know belittling them or say calling him a quitter he would just say thank you for all you've done for us all you've done for the army you know anything we can do for you you let us know going forward and it was it was always that way of hey this person's moving on to bigger and better things they're going to do you know a different uh, chapter of their life and um i i just thought his his attitude about that was incredible and uh it's uh, i think that's the best way to be right you you want to have relationships with people i mean if you've got a squared away person's going to move on to a different uh department having a great relationship with that person is is powerful for you for your department's going to benefit uh it's going to benefit you uh as well so it's the idea that you're going to just insult that person and you know, for leaving, I think is, is really short-sighted. Well, relationships are paramount, you know, and so when they leave, they're, one, they're carrying our brand over there, which actually helps with recruiting other firefighters uh, because somebody who's young is trying to figure out, man, this guy's squared away and he works for, you know, ABC Fire Department. How, where did he start? Oh, he's at Black Forest. And it actually helps with recruiting. But the other thing is, is, you know, we deploy firefighters all over the country to do a variety of tasks, whether it's wildland or urban search and rescue. They're going to go and interact with other people all of the time, so why not have the relationships in place beforehand? So, um, yeah, we had a graduation three weeks ago, I think it was, from a recruit academy. 
and we're losing a guy to a larger department, highest paid fire department in Colorado. And the new recruits asked me, you know, hey, chief, uh, how's that make you feel when somebody's leaving? And I was like, to quote our friend Jocko, good. <laughs> and they were like, what? And I said, we're unleashing good human beings into the fire service. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Yeah, they're not staying here. Yeah, the taxpayers would like to get more return on that investment. But they're good people, and they're going to do a good job somewhere else. And they're taking our brand with them. I have no problem with that. And some of those people may come back, too, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that long-term strategic vision is is really powerful. And that says a lot about your leadership. And and most people, I think, are short-sighted when it comes to that. You know, they're, they're, uh, they see that as a problem instead of an opportunity to to spread the message and help other, other fire departments out there. That's yeah. awesome. Well, in the first responder community as a whole, you know, there's, there's struggles, you know, I, I and I, I'm assuming that it's probably that way in corporate America as well, but you know, that leadership is the difference. And if you're not investing in leadership, you're really not investing in the team. You're not investing in the bottom line and you know, the return on that investment, that's, that's failure, you know? So it's like, Hey, we just got to invest in developing good people and they'll, they'll take care of the rest. We had a client recently, uh, in the corporate world that was, um, one of their, one of their complaints was, you know, losing people to competitors and I'm tired of training people up and then having them leave, you know, go, go somewhere else. And, and, um, they're like, what can we do to stop that? And I was like, build a culture of extreme ownership that, that utilizes the laws of combat, cover, move, simple, prioritize, and execute, decentralized command. Like this, the more of that you have in your organization, the more people are going to want to stay and be a part of that organization. There's always going to be some level of attrition, and, and that's, that's okay. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, uh, that, that's very, very strategic of you. Yeah, the, the culture piece is spot on. You know, So small suburban department, we've got – in the state of Colorado, we've got, you know, city of Denver, city of Colorado Springs, and then we've got these other large fire districts. And so how do you compete? How do you compete with that? And that's, and I get asked that question all of the time because we cannot pay what the city of Colorado Springs does yet. Um, we can't pay what Denver pays. And the reality is the way we compete is culture, you know, and if we have a culture where not that you get to do what you want to do, but you get to have ownership of what you're doing. Um, that's that's way better than being told what to do all of the time. <laughs> as, as we often say at Echelon Front Rank, <laughs> control over your own destiny is the best compensation you can give somebody. Yeah. Uh, and, awesome. and that's culture, you know, and that's the confluence of stories and character and uh, all of those things put together. That's why it bothers me so badly when we – you know, I don't know, you and I have had some conversations with some, some fellow firefighters, um, you know, just about about giving people ownership of the schedule, you know, or, or uh, you know, these people like holding the line, you know, on certain things sometimes when you're like, man, let them run with that. What do they want to do? You know, I mean, and as you said, if there's if there's no risk, <laughs> it makes sense. Like, let them do it. No big deal. Like, what's what's the harm in that? Yeah. It, and that's exactly right. You know, it's, you know, to what end? Like, okay, what's the risk here? Oh, there's really zero risk. Good to go. And, you know, is it effective? Yes. Then why Why do I want to put any strain on that relationship to have it my way? 
I think when you're pulling the thread on that, that's generally what it comes down to. It's ego. It's ego. Like, no, no, I'm in charge here and I'm going to tell them what to do. And how dare they not think that my plan is the greatest plan of the universe, you know? And, um, I've had a lot of conversations with that, particularly on the fire service side where, you know, a leader's really trying to hold the line on something when you're like, Hey, you're, your folks want to organize a little bit differently or hey, they want to they want to adjust the shifts or they want to have a little more say in who's working when or, or where like let them do it like why what's the harm in doing that when you start pulling that thread it's uh those questions become very hard to answer i think yeah and there's a balance to everything right is you can't just let them do whatever they want however if they've got a great idea and you're comfortable with the risks and it's effective why are you not just letting them do it like, why not? You know, so yeah, um, the way they, the way that they staff rigs as far as like, hey, I want to work on this shift or this person wants to work on that shift. Well, if they have equal sets of skills and you don't have imbalances and you can look from a broad spectrum that those, those crews are good to go, then why not let them determine that? I mean, what, because you're the boss? <laughs> well, it comes down to leadership capital, right? And the yeah. question is, obviously, if there's a reason to do it and it's going to affect the mission, um, it's going to affect the team, um, it's going to affect the ability to mitigate risks you know, to the team, yeah. obviously, then, uh, then it doesn't make sense. And that should be pretty easy to explain. Um, but I think you know, when you're evaluating everything that comes down to just simply leadership capital, like is it worth my leadership capital to expend that holding the line on this particular situation just to insist on the plan that I came up with. And I think um, most things, it's it's just not. It's just simply not if you detach and put your ego in check. Yeah, and for me, I often think that if I have to make the decision, I'm robbing somebody else of the opportunity to make the decision. So when I first started, the very first week, this is, this is a serious serious scenario i couldn't believe it my very first week i actually think it was the first day but it was all kind of a blur because there i am saying what i'm the interim fire chief how did this happen i'm like i think i've told you i'm the accidental fire chief i shouldn't be the, the fire chief so the deputy chief of of the department number two guy comes into my office and it was either the first day or the second day and he says hey chief can can i get permission to buy toilet paper and i was like are we that centralized that only the fire chief can op, you know, can authorize the purchasing of toilet paper. I'm pretty sure everybody needs to use that like every day. <laughs> like this should not be something this that is, comes to the fire chief. This is mission critical gear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like, wow, that's where we're at. We're at an overly centralized organization. Um, nobody can make any decisions. Everything's complicated. You know, so it was like starting to just dismantle that over time, and now. I, like I said, I pretty much don't answer any questions. I don't authorize anything because I just want them to do it. I give them parameters, and then if they reach that sticking point where they just won't commit, I, I'll ask them, what's keeping you from making this decision? And uh, then they're like, I'm going to do it. Like, okay. You know, and for me, it's having the patience to look at every interaction with that other person as an opportunity to develop them into being the leaders that I want. Because we need leaders of it from the very first day throughout their whole career. I need them to step up and lead. We're a small team, so everyone has to execute. You know, and then it's a it's a lot of work. You know, because you're constantly pouring into them. 
No question. It, it takes it takes time and effort, right? And then as new people come, join the team and others leave, it's a, it's a constant process of of kind of building up the trust and confidence and those the, the power of those relationships, you know, to facilitate decentralized command for sure. And then ensuring everybody understands the the purpose, the goal, the end state you're trying to get to, the commander's intent, as we say in the military, and then the parameters where they can make decisions where they can't. Um, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, PJ, you know, where is, because I see this a lot, right, when, when from in the first responder world, when someone is talking about extreme ownership, they're making reference to Jocko podcasts or talking about the books, extreme ownership, dichotomy of leadership, or what they learned at a muster, and there's pushback that people, well, that's, that we're, this isn't the military, that doesn't apply here, um, or this is different. Like, where have, where have you seen pushback on this, uh, on these concepts, and, and how have you overcome them? Um, well, one of the, one of the pushbacks will be, <clears throat> typically it'll be former military guys that have had a bad relationship with the Navy <laughs> at first. Cause at I've first glance, yep, exactly. At first glance it'd be like, Oh, you know, what am I learning from that? You know? And you know, that's kind of probably their first one. But for us in the fire service, we're able to make a pretty quick correlation, I think probably better than law enforcement because we're a small team, sounds familiar, operating in a time competitive environment, sounds familiar, having to operate in uncertainty, sounds familiar. So we can, in the fire service at least, we can adapt the lessons that you took from combat and apply them to our world very quickly. You know, the difference is your enemy had free will. Our enemy follows the laws of physics. So that's something we can kind of predict. We can start to mitigate some of those risks. But that time competitive environment and being able to operate in that friction and have bad communications and everything goes wrong, you know, right when you need it to go right. I mean, I always joke that Murphy is my best friend from Murphy's Law. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know, in the fire service, we have automatic aid and mutual aid. And Murphy is my automatic aid partner. And he's, he's at every fire and he's very well staffed. <laughs> um but so we're in the fire service, we're able to take the lessons that you guys took from combat and apply them pretty quickly. So, you know, it's typically a little bit of a relationship thing that people have had in the past um, with SEALs in particular, or it's a bias that they have, what they've seen in the, in the media. You know, I mean, of course, we won't, open, we won't even open that can of worms, but, you know, it's just like, they come with a certain bias and you just got to overcome that a little bit, you know, and then they start, they seem to buy in once they start to see it uh, more and more. It's been pretty awesome for me to see how many uh, fire departments have questions on their promotion exams, you know, out of extreme ownership um, and have taken this stuff on board and, and utilize it, you know, which, which is awesome. I mean, clearly there's, you know, I think for every veteran out there, for people that have encountered seals who were massively egotistical and you know look i've i've my my some of my absolute favorite humans i've ever worked with in the you know in the seal teams unbelievable people and some of the absolute worst people i've worked with just egomaniacs that are out of control in the seal teams too so i understand you know where they're coming from with that um and i think uh that could be said about firefighters too <laughs> <laughs> look it's everywhere right? yep. it, it's, it's yeah. everywhere and i think um 
I, th I think just you've done a great job, I think, of overcoming that by simply just living these principles, not just trying to smash people or forcing it down people's throats. I mean, as Jock often says, right, no food tastes good if it's forced down your throat, but just uh, by letting it be their idea and inter introducing them to concept, like piquing some interest, you know, in, in that. Um, and it's uh, it's been awesome. See, I don't think I've met a single member of Black Forest Fires coming into our events that hasn't been totally fired up about uh, what they're learning, eager to, to, to learn and go and apply. This yeah, stuff. I mean, of course they volunteered to go. You know, so we did have we did have some people that there's a balance to everything. And there's a broad spectrum. You know, and that's one of the challenges I have. So my organization has you know 55 people I have to communicate with on a regular basis. So how do I have a simple, clear, concise message that resonates with all of them? So some folks. They want even less information. Some people, they want like an encyclopedia. And so trying to message that has been tough because some people probably would say that I was forcing extreme ownership down on them just because I bought them the book. Like, hey, man, here's reference in case you want to work on some leadership stuff. I actually don't care whether you read it or not. Um, but we're buying all the officer stuff because you guys came to us and said we need leadership development. Okay, cool. Here's some tools. Um They'd be like, oh, he's forcing it on us. No, there's no test. <laughs> there's no test. Um, but the folks that you've interacted from our department, they're, they're like, hey, I want to go. I mean, the, the list, the repeat customers, there's a long list of those. You know, they, and it's like, yeah, hold on. These other people get to go first. Um, so I think more, more than it being a reflection of what I've brought to the organization, it's really what Echelon Front's done as far as every time they interact with you guys, they come back fired up and the message spreads. And then all of a sudden, three other guys on that crew, they want to go, send them, and they come back. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just a conduit, you know. I'm just a signpost that points the direction. I don't actually do anything. <laughs> Well, you've you, you've you've piqued people's interest and gotten them there, and I think you know. I mean, even just the, your 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 three leaders that you had at, at our field training exercise program. I mean, it was just awesome to see. That's humbling. It's a humbling program um, where you're putting people in uncomfortable situations and having to make decisions, and you know, there's immediate real time feedback on what works and what doesn't work, and and uh, it's just really cool to see the their ability to be self-critical of like, Hey, I, I need to do a better job here. I need to actually improve here. This is something I got to work on, you know, going forward. Um, and it's, uh, it's awesome to see that because not everybody reacts in that way. A lot of people want to talk about it. It's what's well, everyone else around me, you know? Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about too is, you know, I think it's your perspective as a chief is, is very valuable. And, and obviously, you know, 21 years in the fire service and you've come up to the ranks and, and seen this, but, just like in the law enforcement uh, world as well, one of the biggest you know frictions that we see often is those frontline leaders that are out there trying to make things happen, and and you know their relationship back up the chain with the chief, you know, with with those you know the senior leaders that they have to deal with. And I remember one particular time, Jock and I. This was this was early on in one of our musters, and we we're talking to um, uh, a frontline uh, leader in the fire service, and. Uh, he was talking to, to me and Jocko about our uh, about a situation where he was, you know, he clearly had a friction relationship with his chain of command, and he was he they were responding to a fire, and he 
sees the situation. He's getting his guys together. He's going to go actually execute to start fighting this fire. And he was told to stand down. We'll tell you what to do. And, uh, and so he was, you know, Jocko, he's asking us like, what do we do in that situation? And, and clearly the answer that he wanted was like, well, you just tell your, you know, you just tell your chief, uh, that, that you'll deal with him later and you go fight that fire and save lives and do what you need to do, you know. And obviously if people's lives are on the line and, and there's, 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 an, there's something that you can do to save lives, I mean, that's going to be the top priority. But as we kind of sat there, initially, um, I was just listening to jo- Jocko's response to this question was, was great because his initial reaction is like, well, you do, do what you got to do. And then he kind of backed off that to say, well, actually – what I need to do is ask myself, why is my chief, why does my chief not trust me to go and execute this thing? Why do I have such a bad relationship with my chief that I'm being told to stand down instead of actually being able to go and, and, and contribute significantly, you know, to, to this. And, and clearly there were, there weren't lies on the line, the situation, it just, maybe there's some property that could have been saved if they just started, you know, fighting this fire sooner. But, um, and that question was, okay, from a strategic perspective, why do I have zero leadership capital in the bank? Why do I have such a bad relationship with my chief that, uh, that he doesn't trust me to actually just start doing what I need to do to fight this fire? And, and once we kind of opened that can of you know, worms up, you could clearly see where that leader was like, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm blaming the chief here when I got to do a better job actually building this relationship. So what would you say to folks like that as far as, you know, what they need to do to build better relationships up the chain of command so that they do have more trust and confidence in, you know, from their senior leadership to actually go do what they need to do to accomplish their mission. Wow. There's a lot there. (laughs) Um, and you hit the, you hit the nail on the head relationship. I mean, that's, you're going to have to build a relationship and it's leadership is leadership whether you're leading down the chain of command or up the chain of command, it's leadership. Um, it's, you know, building that relationship and I'll go back to my two questions. Am I comfortable with the risk and is it effective? So if I'm a firefighter and a chief wants me to go do something and I think it's completely dumb, but the risks I'm comfortable with and it's effective, I'm like, okay, I, oh, yes, sir. Got it and you just do that all of the time and there's zero friction, the time comes that it's moving outside of being effective um, or it's a little too much risk and you want to push back, that chief is going to look at you right away and say, what does he see that I don't see? Because you've been compliant the whole time. Um, but more, more importantly, you've supported the chief's decisions the whole time. And it doesn't have to be the chief. It could be uh, your lieutenant. You know, on a fire depart- on a fire department company, you might have a lieutenant, a driver, and two firefighters, or you might like New York will have like a lieutenant, a chauffeur, and four firefighters. You want to have a good relationship with that first line leader too. So, what's it hurt if he's telling you to put a uniform on and you want to hang out in your shorts and a t-shirt all day? Uh, put the uniform on. What's the risk? You know, but you're building that leadership capital. That and I, you know, I use the term relationship capital and leadership capital interchangeably because they're actually the same thing for me. Just build that capital and keep building it. And I've and I've made the argument before that your reputation in the fire service has value. It has value because in that time competitive environment, if you and I are both firefighters 
and you don't have a good reputation or you don't have a relationship, but let's say you don't have a good reputation with the chief and you say, hey, we're going to go to the roof and vent, he's probably going to say no. But if I have a good reputation and I say we're going to go to the roof and vent, exact same building, exact same fire, he's going to say yes. The reason he's going to say yes is because he trusts me because I've built that relationship up. That's going to frustrate you. <laughs> like, how come he says yes to him but not to me? And so your reputation, um, you know, that has value, and that reputation is built on the relationship that you have chosen to build with your boss. Um, and it's the inverse is just as true. As the chief, if I want them to do what I need them to do, I need them to trust me, so i got to build a relationship with them so that when I tell them to do something, you know, especially when I'm telling them, because now I'm no longer asking them, hey, what do you think's best? I'm like, hey, I need you to do this because time's been compressed. So for me, it's the it's the same thing, build a good relationship. And, you know, it, you also have to apply some grace because this was tough for me. Uh, first starting out as a firefighter, like black and white. Engine puts water on the fire, truck opens up the building. It's not that simple. I mean, it's not that difficult. It's quite simple. That's not true at all. <laughs> There's a, like a whole lot of variables that go into that. And, you know, in that time competitive environment, I'm told to do something. I have to trust them, but also I have to have some grace. Like, okay, they're seeing things that I don't see. I'm just going to have to go with it. And if they make a mistake, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't just hammer them like, oh, I knew he was wrong. I knew he was wrong from the start. Um, because it's definitely different as you move up in leadership, you know, you've got a bigger picture to be looking at, you know, for me, I tell, I have a standard where I want everybody thinking strategically all the time, but then my command staff, I want them thinking grand strategically all the time. Um, and that's a, that's a stretch, but you know, I'm looking at things even on a fire where are we building a relationship or destroying a relationship with our neighboring fire department who's on the exact same fire? Because if we're so focused on the mission, you could get bought into like, well, it doesn't really matter. We're going here to put out this fire and save lives and property. Yeah, but are we destroying, are we actually burning down our relationships with everybody that's supposed to support us at the next fire? You know, so there's a balance there. And that's tough, I think, for some folks on the fire service that are riding on the back seats or even some of the officers like, what, why are we not doing this? There's, there's probably a good reason. Um, and I'm not saying that every, every fire chief or battalion chief is competent, um, but build, build a relationship with them and, and support them. And if you support them, they're going to support you. It's that law of reciprocity. Yeah, this is this is uh, trust, listen, respect, influence, right? I mean, that's what you're talking about. I think there's that to me. You know, when I hear someone uh, telling me, and whether this is in the first responder world, whether it's in in um, um, in the corporate world, um, when someone's telling me like, "Hey, the chain of command isn't listening to me," that's often the question we ask: is how often are you pushing back on stuff? And and generally, what you find is that those are people that are pushing back all the time. And so instead, you know, instead of you actually listening to me when I'm saying, Hey chief, I don't think it's a good idea. If, if it's just me saying, I don't think it's a good idea. Well, I say that all the time. You're like, Oh, it's just life again. He's complaining about stuff. Like, like always. So I have no ability to influence you whatsoever. You know? And I think that's the, it's a hard thing to think about, but if you can keep your ego in check, 
keep those emotions in check. Yeah, and, and I used to, I say this being the chief haterade drinker and, and you know, and uh, tasking a bruiser uh, where, you know, I talk about how screwed up the chain of command is, you know, all the time. And, and, and yet, you know, when you realize like, hey, it, 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 took, it took Jocko as a mentor to me to say, hey, does it help us to not have a good relationship with our boss, you know? And so we didn't push back on stuff. We get told to do something that makes us a little more efficient. Okay, we some paperwork process. Cool. We're going to do all that stuff. And we're not going to push back on anything until it actually matters. And I think, you know, that idea of like, hey, I want people to trust me. I want people to listen to me. I want people to respect me. And I want to have influence over the chain of command and over our organization, over our mission. Um, I've got to give those things. And, and if you're thinking about that stuff in strategic terms in every interaction, um, whether it's with your team, whether it's with peers, whether it's up the chain of command, I mean, it just makes all the difference in the world in your ability to actually, uh, you know, when you give those things, um, then you, you give people trust, you listen to other people, you, you know, you, uh, you actually, uh, you show them respect and you allow them to influence you. They give you those things in return. It's, it's pretty amazing. The influence that you gain over the organization. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point on your question about that lower level leader, mid-level leader looking up the chain of command, but I, you know, that is, this is where the patience comes in from the upper leadership mentoring people down below so if you're getting pushback from your people why are you getting pushback what do they see that you don't see and what's your relationship like with them because the easy button is to just say yeah that's what i said do it and move on and they're going to go execute but clearly they see something either they see something that you don't see or what i find often is they're unaware of something that you're aware of and so you're robbing them of the opportunity to grow in that moment. So that's where you got to have the patience and the intentionality to be open to that every single moment of the day where when that comes up, you'd be like, okay, walk me through what you're seeing. Why are you pushing back on this? Because you clearly see something or I didn't do a good job giving you enough information. And I'll tell people all the time, like is when we walk out this door, we have to be aligned on this. So if we're not now, what do we got to do to get there? Um, so yeah, I mean, does that make sense? Like you got to build that relationship down the chain and you got to listen, you know? So it's not just up the chain where it's like, Hey, I need to listen to the chief and listen to the battalion chief, listen to the captain. It's like, Hey, what's that firefighter seeing that I'm not seeing that, you know, or clearly the firefighter is pushing back on this because my message that I thought was clear didn't resonate through the ranks to get to him. And he thinks that the reason I want him in uniform is because I'm just, you know, I'm ready to go invade a country. <laughs> it's like, no, actually, it has to do with more than that, you know. Um, so I have to have that conversation, but I want to hear it. And I, I need to listen more than speak. And if, if they don't understand it, the problem isn't them. The problem is you, and you got to take ownership of that. That's the power of extreme ownership for sure. Yeah. Um, just like you've said before, you know, Dave Burke's uh, Cliff Notes, it's your fault. <laughs> The end. <laughs> yeah, Dave, Dave Burke's summary of extreme ownership. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Everything is your fault. The end. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty spot on. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, I mean, if, if you just, just advice to firefighters out there, first, first responders in general, um, about how to take and implement these concepts in, into their world, like what's, where should they start? Uh, go to the locker room and look in the mirror. 
you know, and I know that sounds just short, but that is the truth of it is I think every firehouse, I'd be willing to better at this point that in every firehouse in the United States, somebody working at that firehouse knows of extreme ownership somewhere, somewhere, someone in that firehouse, they know it. And even in headquarters buildings, you'll see a discipline equals freedom flag and some random office. So if you're in an organization that's not taking ownership, well, that's on you. You know, step up and lead and start showing how to do that. And if you're waiting for your boss to take ownership, that one, that's a, that's a long road. Um, they might retire before they ever take ownership, you know? So it's just a matter of really looking at yourself and really start implementing those things. And how do you, how do you start to your point? Build relationships. Relationships are paramount to winning period. And you never know when that relationship you built is going to actually be the relationship you need a decade, two decades down the road. Um, and it's got to be genuine, authentic, you know. Like if you believe in the mission of the fire service or law enforcement, then you should be trying to help execute that mission all the time and building those relationships that are going to achieve that end state. The byproduct of that is you're going to have good relationships. If you're trying to build a good relationship so you can do what you want, <laughs> you know, that's that's probably not going to pan out for you as well. Um but I think to start, look at yourself and then start with building relationships. I mean, you guys laid it out in a pretty pretty easy format to follow. Cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, decentralized command. Cover and move, relationships, teamwork. That's where it all starts, you roughly. Know? So if, that, if you're trying to figure out where to start, start there. I think that's fantastic advice, PJ. There's uh, so oftentimes... You know, we, we always say this, right? When we talk about extreme ownership, and whether it's a, you know, to to a, a, a fire department or a police department or uh, a, a corporation um, or a nonprofit organization, whatever whatever team that we're actually talking to, there's always you know folks in there like I love this concept, and I hope I hope Nancy over there is paying attention, or I hope Fred's actually listening to this, or I hope my boss is listening to this thing. And you can't control them; you can only control you. And when you focus on you. And you taking ownership of everything in your world, building better relationships with people, implementing the laws of combat, it just it's it's total game changer. And you realize how much influence you actually have over the outcome of situations simply by you taking ownership and implement solutions to get those problems solved. Yeah, and again, I'm gonna reiterate the patience. You gotta have patience because the thing is that you're never actually gonna get there. It's the journey. The extreme ownership is a journey. So if you're hoping that your boss is going to take extreme ownership or your guys and gals are going to take extreme ownership, don't worry about that. Just worry about you, what you can control, and understand it's a journey. And it's humbling. You know, the more and more that you get humbled, the more and more you're going to be humbled. And if you're not comfortable with being humbled, like, all of the time, yeah, it's going to be a tough, tough journey for you you know and I think that's where people they want other people to take ownership because I think there's something I think there's something innate in people I mean 
we'll go back to my faith. What did Adam do when uh, they ate the fruit? He blamed his wife. <laughs> and then she blamed the snake. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like there's something in our genetic makeup, our DNA, where we don't want to take ownership. We actually want to blame everybody else. And, you know, that's obviously that was the wrong decision. <laughs> and that's played out um, over several millennia now. So... It's like, hey, just do the do the difficult thing. Recognize it's actually on you and step up and take ownership. And uh, the cool thing about it is is that's where that freedom comes from. Is you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's actually on me. Um, so I, I think that would be the answer. I know it was kind of a long answer, but look in the mirror and build the relationships and realize it's really on you. That's spot on. It's it's humbling, but it's liberating, right? We've got, mm-hmm. uh, it's humbling because it's all your fault, and that stings the ego. Um, and yet, if it's on you, if the, if the problem is you, then you actually are the solution to the problem as well. And I think that's, it's liberating to know that everybody makes mistakes and everybody falls short and no one has all the answers, you know, for the reasons you talked about earlier, right? As it, it maybe take you years to fully understand and appreciate Hey, look, I'm never going to learn all this stuff. Um, it, but it's liberating to know that all you have to do is take ownership uh, for mistakes that you made, implement solutions uh, to those mistakes and fix them going forward. And, and, and that is all that's required to be an effective leader and, and to build that, that into the culture of an organization. Yeah, I mean, it's, it really is a day-in, day-out task, and the intentionality is key. You know, it's not a – I think I've heard either you or Jocko say, you know, it's not a – you're not going to get inoculated just one time and be good to go. I mean, it is a discipline to take ownership all the time. I was telling you last night at, at dinner, you know, I've been, been married 25 years. My wife's a saint for putting up with me and yeah. And, uh, you know, extreme ownership. What did we say that came out in 2015? So that's eight years ago, seven years ago, you know, and just like two weeks ago, I get up at 4am, I go to turn on the coffee pot and uh, it's not set up. And I'm like, why didn't she set it up? But that was only for a split second. Cause it was like, why didn't I set it up? You know? And I didn't say anything to my wife. I made coffee, pour her coffee first, and it's go like it's no factor. But when you realize, like, hey, it's really on you, and you can't blame anybody else, um, there's there's some freedom to that. The other piece of that is is the people that work for you are going to disagree with you on this. They're absolutely going to disagree with like that's not really your fault. When you get to the point, I feel like when you get to the point where you can actually articulate how. That person that works over on this shift, uh, you know, at a different station that you never see made the wrong decision, how that's your fault. Um, you're, you're probably getting somewhere with the extreme ownership and people are like, how do you do that? Um, but you, you start to realize that everything under, uh, for me, everything under my command is absolutely my fault. But I'd also say that everything that's within my sphere of influence is also my fault if it doesn't go the way that I need it to go. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of work, but you got to be intentional with it. It's not going to be a one. Go get, go to the muster. Yes. 
go to the muster once? No, go twice. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a training continuum, right? And you're yeah. learning all the time. And, it, and look, leadership is a skill. Um, and it's a skill that atrophies if you're not training it and you're not thinking about it. You're not challenging it all the time um, as well. So I think that's a, that's a great point. That, that skill piece, I think, also, you know, I think that gets overlooked. You know, it truly, truly is a skill, which the nice thing about – the nice thing about skills is they can be taught, which means they can be learned. The bad thing about skills is that they're perishable. So if you don't practice it all the time, that skill is going to it's going to start to go by the wayside, you know. So if you if you're going down this path, stick with it and practice it all the time. Otherwise, it's just going to fade into the background. No question. Any uh, any final thoughts you want to share with? With the audience here? You know, I think along that same line, I think the biggest understatement that you've probably ever made that I've ever heard is simple, not easy. (laughs) Is, yeah, it is simple. But I think people still think it's going to be easy. And there is no way that extreme ownership, insulting your ego all of the time, humbling yourself, being humbled by others, um, yeah, it's not easy. It's going to be the most difficult thing you ever do, but I think it's going to be one of the most rewarding things for yourself and for your organizations. And, uh, yeah, I think while I agree with you, simple, not easy, I think people are still looking for the easy path, and it's not It's not easy. You know? they, they don't understand just how difficult it is, and I would agree with you 100% on that. I mean, I, Dave Burke and I were running a, a – a workshop one time just to put some quantifiable data on that. These are people that had every single one of them could define extreme ownership and could give you a definition of it. That was, you know, pr- pretty close or, or, you know, very thorough. So they understood the concept and yet we gave them a role play scenario where they had to take, uh, they had to, they had to have a tough conversation with an underperformer, someone who is one of their key leaders who failed to meet the timeline on a critical deliverable. And, uh, we, we put that out there and we floated around to the different fire team, you know, fire team exercises that here that as they were role playing the scenario and there wasn't, I mean, it was a group of probably 200 people and there was, I didn't, neither me nor Dave, I, I, we didn't hear a single person actually start that conversation with ownership. It was like, hey, you screwed this up and you know, you didn't meet the timeline. And there, there never was like, you know, the idea of like, hey, listen, we didn't meet the timeline here. That's my fault because I didn't explain to you, you know, why this is important. I didn't check in with you two weeks ago to make sure that we were on track. I didn't ask you what resources that you need. Um, this is what I'm going to do to fix that going forward. And and it makes that conversation so much easier. By the way, all those things are true. If you're talking about somebody in your team that that failed, you know, and yet just to me that was a real eye-opening example of just how difficult this actually is. All every single person that had been in there for multiple workshops, understood the concept of extreme ownership. Everybody had read the book. Everybody could define it and yet was unable to actually apply it in a fictional scenario in real time. Um, and just the, the, you know, just this, this small little example uh, of, of how hard this stuff actually is. Yeah. Do you think it's, do you think it's they just, they don't, they think there's more to it than what you're saying? You know, like you guys lay out a pretty pretty easy, simple process. Hey, follow these five steps to taking ownership. 
and then they're like, well, it's, there's got to be more to it than that. So they don't even do the five. And I don't know if maybe part of it is they follow that step. They have a script in their back pocket. And I say, oh, Leif, I, you know, this is totally on me. I didn't look at my notes. I didn't resource you properly to make sure that this happened. And these are the things I'm going to try to do next. And I'm going to hire more people and this and that. And they probably feel like they're going through this rote memorization thing. They don't feel genuine. And I would say that's just like martial arts. When you first start, it's very, very like, hey, do this, position this way. But as you get more and more, there's a flow. You know, there's just, you actually don't think about the moves at all anymore. You're just in a state of flow and it just comes out. And I think what probably happens for some people is they see you and Jocko and Dave and JP and, you know, the whole team. And like, man, that just seems to come so naturally to them. But of your own admission, you were like the chief haterade. And Jocko had to pull you aside and be like, how does it benefit us? <laughs> totally. Look, I stumble all the time, right? I mean, when I start casting, you talked about, you know, the, 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 the coffee pot with your wife. Yeah. Believe me, on the home front, when I start casting blame, making excuses, pointing fingers, my, my wife reminds me that I wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and I should start taking some. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's a hard thing. It's hard yep. for any of us to do. We all, it's yeah. the standard that we, we strive to achieve, and yet it's, it's something that we're, we all fall short and, and uh, to some degree. And so it's just simply taking ownership and solutions going forward. I, I think to answer your question, though, I don't think people realize how difficult it actually is in real time. In the same way that if you took a brand new recruit out of, out of the, the, the fire academy and, and asked them if they're prepared to go and handle a five alarm fire, you know, or, or the, wor the worst kind of triage situation that they can handle, you know, mass casually on the highway, whatever, whatever you know, uh, most difficult level of situation you could put them in. And if you ask them if they're ready, they're practically saying, yeah, I'm ready, bring it on. They don't even know how hard that's going to be. And it, it was the same way for me. I mean, as, as I talked about before, if you, if you ask SEALs, hey, are you ready for this stuff, urban combat? And, uh, um, I mean, and if Jocko actually told me and Seth Stone, the Delta Platoon Commander, before we deployed to Ramadi and Tasking a Bruiser, he was like, you guys are going to get so much combat, you're going to get tired. And we laughed about that. I remember this conversation before we deployed. We were still in San Diego. You know, this is March 2006, just a week before we left. And, uh, and man, it was 100% true for just about everybody to ask you to bruiser, you know. So um, it's, it's this idea that you don't know how hard it's going to be until you get there. Um, and so I think if people so, – so just like martial arts, like you said, right, you step on the jiu-jitsu mats – you feel like you're a pretty tough guy and you can take care of yourself. And, you know, it, it takes it takes getting mopped up by somebody who's half your size, you know, who just has a lot higher skill level than you, who's trained a lot more than you, uh, to realize like, oh, there's a lot more I need to learn. I'm not, I'm not near as good as I thought I was. And so I think that's where training really comes in, right? If you can humble people in training mm -hmm. and they realize – Hey, I'm here and I got to get here. And, and if, you know, my, my level of, of my skill set is not near where it needs to be. If you can humble them in training, then they start to realize like, okay, I got to be prepared for just how difficult it's going to be in real life. You know, it's why we say there's no growth in the comfort zone. If you're, if you're sitting in your comfort zone, we all like to sit there where we, where we're comfortable. Um, and, and you got to be put way outside your comfort zone so that you're prepared for those most difficult problems that life can throw at you. Um, and, and I, I think that's, that to me would be the defining characteristic of why humility is the most important quality because, uh, it's the idea of like, Hey, yeah, you think you're totally good to go and you're absolutely not until you get put there and you realize it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's all spot on. And I completely agree with you that humility is the, 
most important attribute. You know, that's, it's, uh, there's a lot to it. I mean, there's a lot to it, but it, it, it is simple. You just take ownership and, uh, reflect on that. And I would say it's really important to the training point that you said is if you're in a leadership position, every interaction you have with somebody on your team is a training moment and you need to just invest in them and don't rob them of the opportunities by being their easy button. They should actually be your easy button. They should be taking stuff off your plate. They should be doing things. And if you're, you know, if you're just answering their questions, um, or not necessarily answering their questions, but if you're making the decision that they could have problems for them, you're robbing them of the opportunity of growth and strategically and grand strategically, you're actually losing because there's now nobody to replace you, you know, and the more you do that, the more people are making decisions that frees up my time that I can actually pour more into those same people. So all of a sudden my bandwidth opens up where I can just focus on, on mentoring and, and developing people. And, and I'm not the smartest guy. I would, I'd argue I'm like one of the least smartest guys in the organization, but having the space means that I can make sure that they have the opportunities to learn lessons. Um, so, you know, just be intentional with your time. That's a, that's a key thing. I, I think, you know, and I think you had asked, uh, do I have anything else? You know, we talked about it uh, up at the council. I brought it up just briefly because the council, amazing event. Right? Um, you got these thousand pound animals that you get to go on a horseback ride with. And and as I reflect on my time in leadership, some of the early, early, early advice I got at a ranch with a guy who um, he chose to walk away from breaking horses to building relationships with horses. And I learned so much from him in such a short amount of time, but it really was he's getting that animal to choose of their own free will to align with his will. That's a wild Mustang. Doesn't even speak the same language. And how's he doing that? Because he's pouring himself into it. He's taking the time. He's paying attention to all the cues. And then, you know, during that process, he's building a relationship to the point where the this wild Mustang trusts him and follows him so if you're to me if you want to be an effective leader you got to pour in your people and get them to align with your mission vision and values of their own free will that takes time it takes a lot of patience takes a lot of love and that's spot on pj that's uh that's a great place to leave it man we we really appreciate you being here and and just can't thank you enough for your friendship, for your example that you've set, um, you know, not only at Black Force Fire, but I think from so many first responders out there um, that uh, about how to take and, and live these principles out and build those in the culture of your team. And uh, just can't thank you enough for making the time to be here with us in person. Yeah, well, I'm humbled, honored to be here. Hopefully this isn't the last time. Come back down. <laughs> we'll do this again. Uh, you guys definitely pulled me out of my comfort zone, which I'm like, I just want to hang out in the shadows and do my thing. <laughs> but uh, if you guys see value in sharing it, then why wouldn't I help share what you guys are doing? I think you guys are doing a, a great job and uh, providing for a great mission and vision. Well, thank you for helping us share this message with the world. And uh, I look forward to getting getting up to Black Forest and, and doing some training in person with your team up there one of these days soon. Yeah, come by. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks.